Again, I want to welcome you this morning if you're visiting with us. Um, I know many of you have brought family and friends this morning for our Easter service, and we are uh, glad that you have come to worship with us, and we hope uh, that you will uh, not have this be your only time, but we do hope you'll come back and visit with us often. This morning, our scripture passage for the message is from Mark's Gospel chapter 6, and when you have that, I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word. We're going to begin in verse 30. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. And he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups on green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. may be seated. As a church, we have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark. And we come this Sunday to one of Mark's passages that is probably most familiar uh, to people who have read or studied at any point the Bible. John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us this particular story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. We should figure that with the women and children that would have been with them as well, the number could have easily been over 10,000 that were fed that day as Jesus is teaching with his disciples. It's one of the great miracles that's performed. It's rare for all four gospel writers to include something uh, that is the same. And yet that is the case here with the feeding of the 5,000. And so it tells us that this is one of the most important uh, miracles that Jesus performs during his ministry. It's one that should draw our attention in. And it's one that tells us something very important about Christ. The disciples have been working. If you go back and read in Mark chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus had already taken his disciples and he had sent them out to do similar work like he had been doing himself. He sent them out to heal people. He sent them out to teach and they go and they cast out demons and he gives them very specific instructions in their ministry. And so now here in this passage, they come back and they kind of have a time of sharing where they talk about what they did and they talk about the success that they had in ministry. And Jesus wants them to take some time to kind of rest and relax after something that had no doubt been a very busy trip for his disciples. But while they are attempting to rest, which Jesus often found it very hard to do in his ministry... They have all of these people come and they want to hear Jesus teach. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see his miracles performed. And there is a lot going on here. There's a lot of chaos that kind of takes away from uh, Jesus and his disciples attempting to rest. 
What we see here is a perfect teaching opportunity for Jesus to instruct his disciples about what ministry is going to be like. What it's going to be like to, to do the work that he has for them. What it's going to be like to go out among people and to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. They need to learn something. They've had this opportunity to go out and to, to teach and go out and to preach and to do healings and to cast out demons. But, but what have they learned from this ministry? See, ministry is, is hard. It's It's difficult. The, the task that God has called us to is, is hard. It's, it's not easy. It, it requires something of us. It, it requires that we put in effort. It requires that we put in time. It requires that we put in sometimes heartache and blood and sweat and tears. And it's, it's sometimes very difficult to do. And so he teaches them something about their ministry, about what he has called them to do. I think it's very valid for us this morning to examine this on, on Easter Sunday as we are considering the, the great gift that God has given us in the resurrection of His Son. The, the good news that we have that, that though God sent Christ to die in our place on a, on a cross, on what we celebrate on Good Friday, God also called Him on that first day of the week, early in the morning when people went to his tomb to visit him, God called him out of the grave and, and showed his conquest over death, over hell and over sin. He demonstrated to us this new life that we would be given in Christ. But that new life involves work. Not work to obtain it, but work after we've been given it. It's called ministry. It's not something that just pastors do. It's not something that just our leaders and our churches do. But God has called all of us, if we are his followers and his children, he has called us to do something great in his name. He has called us to live a life that is dedicated to him. Called ministry. And it's hard. It's increasingly harder in the culture in which we live. It's increasingly harder in the day in which we live, where we are constantly bombarded with everything else, and people's attention is constantly bombarded with everything else. Our lives are pulled in a multitude of directions. And yet, God has called his children. To live a life focused upon Him and upon the work that He has for us to do. And so I want us to look at this text and, and walk through it together and consider the implications for the life that God has called us to. I use the term ministry. The ministry that God has called us to. The life that we are called to in dedication to Him. What does it require well, interestingly, he puts the first thing in, in this particular text in, in verses 30 through 44 that we're looking at. He, he puts the thing that we often think of last, he puts first, which is very interesting. In verses 31, 30, 31, and 32, we see that the disciples have this need to rest. They returned to Jesus and told him about all that they had done. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. They were tired. You know, this theme of rest, and I, I don't want to go too far into this because it's not really the focus of the message this morning, but this, this idea of rest is something that permeates the Bible. It's just, it's just there everywhere. Beginning in the book of Genesis, we see that on the seventh day, God rested from his creative work. He had created in days one through six, and on the seventh day, he, he rests. We just see this theme flow throughout the Bible of, of God and, and rest. We talk about when someone dies, we talk about them entering rest. You know, their labors are over. The trials of this life are behind them, and they enter into rest. It's odd. He puts rest first. Of course, they've been working very hard. They've been out teaching and preaching. And now they come back and he, he says to them, you, you need to rest. We live in a world that's very busy. There's stuff to do all the time. I think about when fall comes and I help coach my son's football team. 
And we have practice Monday. We have practice Tuesday. We have practice Thursday. We have a game on Saturday. We have church on Wednesdays and twice on Sundays. We have, you know, Fridays is kind of that only day that's left free and something often will find its way onto my calendar. We live in a culture that does not value rest. As a matter of fact, we've devalued rest. But interestingly, we are gathered on the first day of the week, the day after the Jewish people would have had their rest. They would take this whole day and they would set it aside to rest. It wasn't just to recuperate. It wasn't just to, you know, get better, get healthier, get stronger. But it was a day that they could step away from everything else in the world that consumed them. Everything else in the world that directed their life, that that pulled at them, every bit of their labor, it was a time they could focus completely on the things of God. If we're going to live the Christian life, if we're going to live the life that God has called us to do, we have to commit ourselves to stepping back from everything in the world that's pulling on our attention. Step back and focus on Him. You say, well, I do that on Sunday mornings between 9 and, if you go to this church, 10.30, because we do take a little extra time. I don't know if they told you that before they invited you this morning. If you're our guest, sometimes we go to like 10.30, I know. But we get out before noon. We always do that, I promise. We've never went to noon, not even one time. But is that adequate to live a life that is focused wholly on the Savior who gave his life for you? Is it enough to step back for an hour or an hour and a half or even two hours a week? Was that enough for his disciples? They, they needed something different. They needed time to step back from everything going on and, and spend time in focus on Christ, in focus on his teaching, considering what he had called them to do and what he had for them. He says, let's, let's leave here and go to this desolate place so that we can rest for a while. I wonder how often you take time to step back from the busyness of life and consider the things of God. Now that's interesting coming from a pastor. It's, it's my job. The, the baptistry is very cold this morning. And my two deacons played paper, rock, scissors to decide who was getting wet with me. And I asked them... Why is it that I didn't get to play in the game? There are two deacons very capable of baptizing. Why did I not get to play in the game? They said, well, that's, this wasn't the exact term, but that's what you get paid for. But I think that I struggle, I know I struggle in my own life with stepping back from the busyness of kids and sports and family and church and thinking about the things of God. Stepping back and resting in the knowledge of who He is and what He has done. Taking a step back from the craziness that surrounds us and saying, I'm going to give this time to God. This is going to be His time. I'm going to focus on His things, on His ways, on what He has done. See, the disciples are tired. They're tired of all the labor. They're tired from all the work that they have done. And quite frankly, they mess up. They they mess up what they're doing. They mess up on their faith here. They mess up the things that are going on. They mess up the answer to Jesus' question because they had had no rest. They had no time to step back and, and focus and think about everything that God has done. Have you done that? It's easy to get so busy with life that you forget to step back and focus on God. But it's also easy If you're here and you say, well, I'm really super spiritual. I'm at church every time the doors are open. I do everything the church does. It's also easy to get busy with that and miss what God's doing. It's easy to get busy with all of the work, whether it's at the church or it's at your house or it's with your family or whatever it is, and miss that time with God. 
He died on the cross for us. He went and was tortured and killed on your behalf. That should then cause us to have a heart that wants to take some time away from everything to focus on Him. Ministry requires rest. Our life in Christ requires rest. It also requires something else. Look in verses 33 through 34. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. They don't get the rest that they're seeking. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's very well known. People are following him around. People want to hear what he has to say. They, they want to see if he's going to perform a miracle. They want to see if he's going to heal someone. And so they see that Jesus and the disciples are leaving. And they kind of see the direction they're going. And so they all run on foot and beat Jesus there. They get there before he does. They're on the boat, kind of going across. When they arrive, there's all these people. And Jesus looks at them. He goes ashore, verse 34. He went ashore. He saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus and his disciples are tired. They need a break. But when he looks at the people, remember there's thousands gathered there. He looks at them and he realizes that they have a desperate need. They need direction. They need hope. These are people who are struggling. These are people who have no direction. These are people who don't, don't know what they're going to do. They, they, they don't know where they're going to put their trust. They, they don't have the, the basic things that they need. So he has compassion on them. And even though he was tired, even though the disciples are tired and they need a break, he begins to teach them many things. See, our life following Christ requires compassion. How can you do the Christian life? How can you follow after Christ without compassion? Some of you struggle with compassion, I'm sure. In a crowd this size, there's no way that everybody is great on compassion. Like, Pastor, you can just mark that one off. We're good. We don't need it. We take care of that every single time. I struggle with compassion all the time. When do you have compassion on people? How do you know when to have compassion on people? How do you, how do you prevent people from taking advantage of you? How do you, how do you stop that? There's so many people out there that want to take advantage of you, that want to do uh, uh, bad things. They, they want to... Um, uh, they see that you're being generous and they just want to take advantage of that. And we worry about that. And that's not the concern that Jesus has here. He doesn't tell us that every person there has a genuine heart. He doesn't tell us that every person there is there for the exact right reason. The Bible tells us that he has compassion. He sees these people who are hurting they're struggling, and he knows that he has an answer to what's bothering them. He knows that he has the solution to their problem. And so he has compassion. We cannot do the Christian life. We cannot follow after Christ in the way that he desires if we do not have compassion. See, we get caught up in what people have done wrong. We get caught up and what sin they've committed. And there's certain things that people can do. And we can have some compassion. But then there's other things. And we say they just brought this upon themselves. We identify people that way. We, we judge people that way. And yet we refuse to have compassion upon them. See compassion is not telling people. That what they have done is okay. It's not telling people that the sin that they've committed is all right, that it doesn't bother God, that it doesn't bother you. Compassion is showing people grace and mercy even when they don't deserve it. Even when they've done nothing to earn it. Because do you realize that that's exactly what God has done for you? He has shown compassion 
for you by sending His Son to die on that cross so that you could have forgiveness. Because you're a sinner. You say, well, I'm not as bad a sinner as the next person. The first sin was eating a piece of fruit. That doesn't sound that bad. That's even one at our house that we'd probably let it slide. Why would God be so upset about that? Because God demands perfection. He doesn't demand good enough. He doesn't demand be okay. God demands that you be perfect. And you're not. The closest I even know of is that eight-month-old boy that lives at my house. Many me, you know. He's not even very small, but. And yet my wife and I are reminded, even within a child, how selfish he is. Kids are selfish. You say, no, they're just, they're just crying. They're just, no, they're selfish. My wife hands him to me, starts to walk off. He pitches a fit. He wants his mama. He wants all of her attention, not some of her attention. He wants all of her attention. He is selfish. He is self-centered. Why? Because he is sinful. God demands perfection. And yet he had enough compassion on us that though we are far from perfect, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. So how then will we go through this life and say we follow after Christ if we have no compassion? Right after I got back from El Salvador, I was in a hotel in Lynchburg speaking at a thing, and it came on a special on... El Salvador and on the people in El Salvador who are trying to get to the United States illegally. And they get on this train and they ride on top of this train for thousands of miles, weeks of travel through Mexico to try to cross over illegally into the United States. And I think about illegal immigration. I think, man, you know, it's against the law. I'm a, I try to be a law-abiding citizen. I think other people should be a law-abiding citizen. And yet I've been there and I've seen what is happening to those people where, where children are taken and killed because they will not join the gangs. Not just killed, but brutally killed and then left for their parents to find them brutally murdered. And I think about, if that was me, I try to get on top of that train. I try to get my kids here and out of that mess. Illegal immigration. Illegal. Wrong. People hurting. Trying to get to a better place. What are we supposed to do about that? We're supposed to have compassion. I don't deport people. I don't work for ICE. ICE doesn't deport people either, so I don't guess it really matters. What are we supposed to do? To people that are hurting, we're supposed to have compassion. What are we supposed to do to our neighbor who is hurting? We're supposed to have compassion. What about the person who is caught up in drugs and they're struggling? We're supposed to have compassion. What about the people who are sinking in sin because they're addicted to, to alcohol, they're addicted to pornography, they're addicted to adultery? What are we supposed to do with those people? We're supposed to have compassion. Because that's what Christ did. Christ hates sin completely. He judges sin perfectly, but he has compassion. He shows compassion to these people, though he's tired and he's wore out and he's fed up and he he wants just to get a break and he gets there and there they are. They've come to hear his message. And what does he do? He has compassion. If you struggle with compassion, understand that you're struggling with your Christian faith. You can't give the checklist of I've got everything else right. I go to church every Sunday. I give every Sunday. I teach Sunday school or I'm a deacon or I'm a leader in the church or whatever. But you get down to the compassion box and say, I just mark that one out. I don't worry about it. You got a problem because Jesus ministry is marked by compassion. 
It's also marked by faith. Look at this. We've got rest. We've got compassion. Verse 35, there's a faith issue here. And when, he, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and hours late. Send them away to go into surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii was... Basically, a denarii is what one person got paid for one day's work. So, 100 people doing two days' work is 200 denarii. One person doing 100 days' work is 200 denarii. However you want to figure it out. Basically, it's 200 days' work. It's a pretty good amount of money. Except that there's thousands of people here. It's not nearly enough. Matter of fact, if you go to John's Gospel and you see the same account that he gives... They say, you know, we could buy this, but everybody would just get like a little piece. And you know when you're hungry and you get just a taste, it's worse than being hungry, right? It's like going to a Mexican restaurant and you eat one chip. One chip. I mean, is that even, can you even do that? I'm not even sure if it's acceptable to walk into a Mexican restaurant and eat one chip. You're going to feel worse than before. So it's of no benefit to them to have these 200 denarii. They've put this back. Remember, this is a group of people that travel around. They have uh, really no place to live, no place to call home. Uh, many of them have had to abandon their jobs to follow after Jesus. So this is kind of all they've got. And it's not enough anyway. But we have to remember what they had just done. They had just went out. And done ministry. with Jesus didn't go with them. They went out. They didn't take anything with them of any importance. And they went out and they trusted that God was going to provide for their needs as they were out there doing this ministry. And now they come up and they've got these people sitting here. They've seen all the things that Jesus can do. They know all of his abilities, all of his ministry, all of his miracles. And you need to send them away. Remember, what do they really need here most of all? They're sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them. So if they leave, he can't teach them anymore. These disciples have a problem with their faith. See, Jesus tells them, hey, you go feed them. That sounds absurd, correct? They don't have the money. We find out later they, they've got five loaves of bread, two fish, not going very far. He says, you go feed them. You go take care of them. Our Christian life has to be done in faith. It has to be done with faith focused on Jesus. I'm amazed at how often churches try to do ministry, people try to do ministry with no faith. This is hard for preachers. You say, well, that should be easy. You're a preacher. You're a super faith person. I have to stand up here every Sunday and have a firm expectation that God is going to do something. Knowing that some Sundays, most people file out of the building, and I got no clue. I, I got no clue what, what God has said to you. I got no clue what is happening. I, I got no clue what God's going to do with what you've heard. Ministry without faith as the, as the foundation is irrelevant. It it's, has no power. It has no authority. It's going to have no results. It's amazing how often churches and Christians put a lot of effort into planning... They put a lot of effort into preparation, but they don't have a lot of faith. You can go to seminary and meet guys that have been in Bible college year in and year out for years, 
They have all of this head knowledge. They've learned all of these things about about who God is and and what he has done and and how to understand him theologically and how to understand him uh, philosophically. And then they they leave and they, they have no foundation of faith. And you get burnt out real quick in the Christian life with no faith. It just seems pointless. What are you doing? What if you are pastor of a church and the church is not growing? What if, what is, if you have no faith, if it's all about the numbers, what's that going to do? If, if you are going through the Christian life and you're really struggling, those trials are coming, those temptations are coming, the difficulties are coming, you look at your bank account and you're struggling, you look at your family and you're not sure if you're going to make it and you have no faith, how do you think you're going to get through that? It's hard enough to get through those things with an abundance of faith. How do we expect to do it with none? Remember, these disciples have just healed people who are sick. They have just cast out demons. They've been preaching in Christ's name. And now they come to him with this piddly little problem of hungry people. One that they should have easily been able to take care of, right? They had the power and authority. They had been sent out by Christ to do these things. Why were they concerned? It's because they didn't yet have the faith they needed. See, I think oftentimes we do things with very little expectation that God's going to be at work in it. And we calculate every little bit of our life with very little room for God. We plan out where we want to be in a year, three, five, ten. Young people, you think about it, this is the type of person I'm going to marry. This is the school I'm going to go to. This is the job I'm going to have. This is the number of kids I want to have. This is the kind of house I want to have. And, and there's, no, there's no room in there for God and what he's doing. It's because we don't have faith. I'm not saying we've got to be blind. I'm not saying we've got to be dumb. Our church in the last couple of years have done a lot of things that took a lot of faith. But we didn't neglect a plan. We didn't neglect to make preparation. But we knew that what we were doing was a step of faith. We didn't know how it was going to happen. We didn't know how it was going to work. We didn't know how we were going to achieve it. I'm amazed at the number of people in churches who end up opposed to ministries because they don't have a lot of faith. They have a problem in their own heart and they stand up against it. The best example I remember, it was very interesting, a number of years ago, we were, the church I was pastoring was going to do a new Bible study for college students. And everybody was excited. Leadership was excited. They were just, we were, we were going to try to reach some of these college students and, and I was not that far removed from college myself and so I I felt like I was going to be able to go and, and, and have a good relationship with these college students. And we were talking about it. The whole church was gathered to talk about it. And this one guy was just against it. Against the Bible study. Now, nobody in the church thought much about it. Because they knew that at his core, he had a faith problem. And in his own life, he was struggling with faith. He was struggling with the understanding of who God was. He had never encountered the forgiveness of Christ. And so for him, this was a foreign idea. Why are we going to start a Bible study? Why would we put our resources into a Bible study? We've got a problem with faith often. And the Christian life means we've got to have it. You say, well, I'm a person of reason or science. I can't do the faith thing. You can't do the God thing. Because a relationship with God is a matter of faith. It's making steps where you can't see what's ahead. It's not doing dumb things. It's not doing things that are irresponsible. But it's putting trust in Christ. And saying, I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to follow your direction." Coupled with that, faith and, and then dependence in verse 38. 
And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? So, so he's asked them to go and, and check. Okay, you guys aren't going to do it. You don't have the faith to make this happen. How many loaves do you have? And they said to him, I'm sorry, go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they can't do it on their own. They, they don't exercise their faith. So God tells them, Christ tells them here, you've got to be dependent upon me. Go and see how much we've got. Go and see what's available. They come back five and two fish. And so then he puts them in groups. He says, okay, I want everybody to sit down. We're going to take care of this problem. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to have the Christian life and the Christian experience, you are going to have to become dependent upon God. Now, I know for many people in our culture, that is a foreign concept. We want to be independent. We want to strike out our own. We want to do our own thing. We want to be responsible for ourselves. But the Bible tells us that if we're going to follow after God, we are not independent, but we are fully dependent upon Him. The realization comes, they're not going to do it. They don't have enough faith to make this happen. So he tells them, I want you to find out how much food we have, and then I'm going to show you what I can do. So he has them to sit down, and he takes the five loaves in verse 41 and two fish, and he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. He takes this food, and he begins to break it. He takes this food and he begins to divide it out. They're fully dependent upon him. If these people are going to eat, it's going to be because Christ gives them something to eat. Do you consider your life to be fully dependent upon Christ? What part of it do you kind of keep for yourself? Okay, I'm dependent upon Christ for my church life, but I'm going to be dependent upon my own wisdom at work. I'm going to be dependent upon my upbringing when I take care of my children. You think that's going to work out well for you? It's not. You may say, well, it's worked out really well before. I, I, I'm very successful in my business. I have great children. They have done fantastic it's not going to work. Christian life is not a life that's partly dependent upon God when we need Him and dependent upon ourselves the rest of the time. It's a life that has to have faith. It's a life that has to be dependent upon Jesus. We are dependent upon someone else. Because here's the reality as we think about Easter this weekend, as we think about the cross and the empty tomb, if it were you that was hanging on this cross, nails through your wrist and your feet, spear through your side, dead, you would have simply been dead. And the death that you would have died would have been the death that you deserved. The death that we all deserve because we're sinful. And the Bible describes for us that the punishment for sin is death. But the fact of it is that if we had died on that cross instead of Christ, that death would not have been enough to satisfy the wrath, the punishment of God. Because what God demanded was perfection. So you and I are dependent, fully and completely dependent on salvation coming from God and from Him alone. So the rest of our life is dependent as well. Is your life dependent upon Christ? Because if not... It's pointless. It's of no value. We're going to accomplish nothing. We're going to do nothing great in God's service 
if our lives are not dependent upon Him. It requires rest, focus on Him, compassion, faith, dependent. And lastly, the last few verses we have. Ministry, life, dedicated to Christ, requires Christ. Only Christ could do what was done here. The disciples had no faith that they could do it in his power. They had no faith that he was going to do it. They wanted to send them away. Ministry requires him. Look at what happens. Verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000. Men, they all ate. Now, imagine this. We have five loaves and two fish. We have doubting disciples that do not believe that he can feed them or that they can do anything. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough anything. And they all eat and are satisfied. Every person sitting there that wanted anything, they ate. They ate as much as they wanted. And they're full. They didn't just have one chip at the Mexican restaurant. They had the basket and the entree and dessert. They had everything they wanted. They had everything they could have needed to take care of this hunger. It is completely fulfilled. Only Christ could have done that. He fed nearly 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I'm amazed at the number of people that try to live a Christian life without Christ. They try to live a Christian life without Jesus. They say, Pastor, is that even possible? No. That's the whole point. It's not possible. The the number of people that want to slap a title on themselves from some denomination, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Catholic or whatever, or they just want to say, well, I'm not really any denomination, I'm just a Christian, but they don't have any relationship with Christ. They have nothing. They are not familiar with Him. They do not know Him. They do not talk to Him. They've not been saved by Him. The numbers if we could have an accurate count, would be staggering. I think about it this weekend. On my Facebook page, every post seems to be about one of two things. College basketball or Easter. Every post. And the, and the college basketball ones are fine. The Easter ones get on my nerves. Because how many people post this this just abounding love for Jesus and Him going to the cross and dying for their sin and you don't hear anything about Him from them for the rest of the year? As a matter of fact, if you were to follow their online lives for the rest of the year, you would have serious doubt about their relationship with Christ. But oh, it's Good Friday. Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Oh, the love that He poured out for me on the cross. But the rest of the year, they say nothing of it. They try to live their life as a Christian without Christ. Friends, that is not possible. Because being a Christian has very little to do with attending church. It has very little to do with passing through those baptismal waters. It has very little to do about what you post on Facebook and Twitter on Friday and Easter Sunday. It has everything to do with a life and heart that have been transformed by the power of Christ. You can't do the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life without Jesus.
See, the great news of Easter is that you and I get to live a life in the name of Christ. He has died in our place. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He calls us to give up our lives to Him. He calls us to minister in His name. He calls us to live in the power of His name. He empowers us and emboldens us as His ambassadors to the world. Easter is about being called to Christ through the power of the cross. I don't begrudge someone who wants to celebrate that our Savior has risen. Because of the fact of the matter is, no matter the person's background, no matter a sin that a person has committed or the multitude of sins that a person has committed, Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for them. From your neighbor here in Eichard to the most vile terrorist overseas. The cross is sufficient. Christ can save and does save those who call on him. But Easter is also a reminder. That today is Sunday. And Monday is coming. And Tuesday. And Wednesday, and summer, and fall, and winter, and years, and decades. And we have been called in those times to follow Christ as well. We have been called to be people who rest in Him, who take time to focus on Him. We've been called to be people of compassion. People who are compassionate toward those who are lost and dying. Those who have no hope in Christ. We've been called to be people of faith. People who are dependent on Him. So I would ask you this morning. The life that Christ has called you to. The the life that He has given you if you rest in Him. Is it one that you are living with Him day in and day out? Is it one where he has control of your life? He is the one who controls your future and your thoughts and directs your paths. But some of you are here this morning and you're lost. You showed up at church because it's Easter and some people only show up at church on Easter. And you're really looking at your watch and you're thinking, I've done Easter and most of Christmas today. I want to encourage you with something. Our God has compassion upon people who only come to church on Sundays at Easter and Christmas. And what I mean by that is he has brought you here this morning to hear the good news once again. The good news that though you are sinful and not perfect, His Son was and His Son is and His Son went to the cross to die the death that you should have died so that you can have the life that we see on that Easter Sunday morning when God calls Christ from the grave. This morning you've heard that good news. This morning he calls on you. Whether you come to church every Sunday or whether you are thinking right now, I will never step foot in church again. He calls you to turn from that sinful, wicked, wretched life that leads you nowhere and turn to the goodness and grace and mercy that's offered in Christ. To turn from your sin and your running and wherever you think you're going and your dependence upon yourself. And he calls you to come to Christ. He's calling some of you right now. 
Call out to him. Cry out in your heart, God, save me. God, forgive me. God, I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of of fleeing from you. God, I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your grace. God, I want to know your forgiveness. God is offering you forgiveness this morning. And grace that is greater than any sin you've ever committed. He calls on you to come and be obedient. You bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are so unworthy of your grace and mercy. But God, we are so thankful that you give it freely. That we can think about the victory that was won on the cross, the death that you died in our place, the one that we deserved. God, we think about the empty tomb. The joyous Easter morning as the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty because you called your son forth. You raised Christ. And in so doing, you show us the power you have over death and our promise of life forever. God, as we have this time, God, of invitation, my prayer is that those who are here who do not know you would hear you speak very clearly. God, they would hear your voice. They would hear your message. God, they would know the hope that is only found in you. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for all that you're doing. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning as we get ready to sing. I am reminded, especially on Easter, of the goodness of our God in giving us hope in Christ. And my prayer this morning is that if you are here not knowing him, that you would respond. Come and let me share with you how to know Christ. Find someone around you and ask them about their Savior. We have been offered this amazing gift of God's grace. What a day it would be to respond on the day that we remember that first gift of grace as Christ walked out of the tomb. Would you respond to God's invitation this morning as we sing?